Morning. Morning. I love this church. If you don't know the history of the church, our first service was in the Lions Club. Remember that? We had some Bible studies. We met in Lions Club. And then we met up on the main street across from, at that time, the X-rated movie theater. The first thing we did was put up curtains so we couldn't have to stare at the posters over there while we took communion. The church was only four rows deep and almost 45 feet wide. It was just really strange to watch the preacher go service. You couldn't get away from the preacher. You're on front row. The downstairs was a pit. Had mold on the walls. We sat down there in Sunday school, memorized the And um, if I seem a little weird, it's because I grew up with Mike Elton, Bryce Schoonover, Rusty Burge, Alan Yoakum, Matt Clifton. So that just rubbed off on me. They rubbed off on me. This kind of keeps going in and out. Um, If the message is bad, it's Virgil's fault. And it's um, Northup's fault because they ordained me and said I was ready to go. So, we might want to try another one. Want to try another mic? Or I can yell like I do in prison. They're going to fix something up here. I was um, really worried about what to talk about during these series of messages, Um, because I think the time that we're in, there are some really important things that we need to go through so that we survive as a church. A lot of things that we don't talk about a lot. So what to expect Expect to be stretched. Expect to disagree with me. Expect to be convicted. Expect to be challenged. Because I was when I was going through this. Matt called the other day, says, how are things going? I said, oh, I got 62 pages of notes. I, don't, I haven't got anything down on paper yet. So I promise I will not preach longer than Jared. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. I apologize. But through this series of messages, it's about can I get a witness? You know, in the West, you, you would think that the natural progression of things is if I have met Jesus and he's done something in my not life, the natural thing to do would be to tell other people. But that is not a natural thing for the church in the West. We do not do that. We do not share with other people what God has done in our lives. So what is the result, the natural result? Everybody around us says, where is God and does he exist? 
And the reason why is because people don't hear stories about God saving marriages. About God healing people. About God comforting those who went through this enormous tragedy in their life. People don't hear those stories. And when they don't hear those stories, the natural result is God doesn't exist. And where is he? And that's where we find ourselves in America. I I work for Alpha USA, come out of London, England, parachurch organization. And Dave Kinnaman's on my board. He runs Barna Research. And one of the things, uh, about a year and a half ago, we partnered together to produce this book called Reviving Evangelism. And one of the things that we found out when we pulled 10,000 Christians was this. 96% of all Christians have never told their story about how they came to faith or led somebody to Christ. And we wonder how we got where we're at. What I'm going to do is, through these messages, and and I'm going to help you tell your story. Each service, you will get a question, and you can go home and answer this question. And by the end of the service, by answering these five questions, I'll help you capture your story. Real simply, so that you can share it with somebody else. How important is your story? Revelation 12 says that in the end times... The only way that we'll overcome what we're going through is by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Those are the two things. And we're going to learn the importance of why that's so valuable, why that's so powerful. Tonight we're going to look at the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9 where he goes about and he witnesses to his parents, he witnesses to his community, he witnesses to the religious leaders. And then the next night we're going to go to the woman at the well where she goes back and tells her story to the village, and the whole village gets saved. Then we're going to look at the story in in, uh, Luke chapter 8 about the healing of the demonic man, who he wants to go with Jesus and just hang out with him, and he says, no, I want you to go back and and, and talk to the people you grew up with. And, And through his witness and his testimony of telling his story, 10 cities in the region hear about Jesus. And then we're going to look at the, in Acts chapter 22 and 26 and and 9, we're going to look at Paul, where God tells Paul, before he goes for King Agrippa, that I want you to testify, tell your story. That is so important. I want to um, have you watch this video. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, those that are in the kids' ministry and stuff, there's some really good videos, McDonald. Uh, a friend of mine has put these together, kind of simply help us understand. This is a video about what does it mean to witness. What? That do it? Oh, don't worry about it. We can go on. It's no big deal. Let's go to the second slide. You can't get to it? (laughs) Okay, I'm waiting.
We're going to be in Acts chapter 1, if you want to grab your Bibles. And we're going to look at one specific verse, but we're going to read verses 4 through 8. When you hear the word witness, you might think of someone who sees something shocking or important and then shares their testimony with others. The word witness is used like this in the Bible too, but here's what's really fascinating. This word actually helps us understand the entire storyline of scripture. In the Bible, a witness is basically someone who sees something important or amazing. In Hebrew, this person is an aide, and in Greek, a martus. And if this person begins to share what they've seen, we call this bearing witness, in Hebrew, ud, and in Greek, martyreo. So in the story of Ruth, when Boaz buys land from Naomi's family, he calls together witnesses to see the transaction, so that if there's a later dispute about the land, they can bear witness about what they saw. So that's the basic meaning of the word witness. Now, if we follow this idea throughout the Bible, we learn that God wants a group of witnesses, people who see and experience him to ood or represent him to the world. So beginning with the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel witness Yahweh as the powerful king of the nations when he rescues them from slavery. Then he appoints this one nation to bear witness or ood to the rest of the nations about what they experienced. He calls them a kingdom of priests, or people who connect all other nations to Yahweh, the true God and King. But there's a big problem. The Israelites aren't good witnesses. In fact, they start worshiping other gods. So God raises up a chief witness, Moses, to ood or bear witness to the people who are supposed to be the real witnesses. When Moses meets with Yahweh on Mount Sinai, he sees and experiences God face to face. When he comes down, he oods, he bears witness to the people about his experience. He even writes a song as a witness so that they would never forget how God has cared for and rescued them. But as the story goes on, Israel does forget. They fail to truly see God, so they fail as his witnesses. So God raises up prophets who are like Moses to ood, to open their eyes to who their God really is. Like Isaiah. He has a vision of God as the cosmic king, and he's sent to Ut to bear witness to the Israel of his day because they're blind, they're corrupt, and they don't recognize God as their king. So Isaiah says that one day God will raise up the ultimate chief witness, a figure called the servant. He will open the eyes of the blind so that they can truly see Yahweh and bear witness to the nations that their God is the king who will rescue the world. And now, when we turn to the story of Jesus, we find him claiming to be that servant and witness spoken of by Isaiah. He's the ultimate witness, or in Greek, the martus. Crowds of people witness him saying that he's bringing God's kingdom, that it's here, right now, through him. They see Jesus healing people, even restoring sight to the blind. Many recognize who he is and respond to his message, but many others still refuse to truly see. Even the nation's leaders won't listen to him. Rather, they kill Jesus for bearing witness to God's kingdom, that is, for being a martyr. In fact, this is where the word martyr comes from. But then, after Jesus' death, something amazing happens. Jesus' friends see him, alive from the dead, and they recognize that he is the divine king, Yahweh himself, who has come to rescue the world. 
After that, Jesus sends them out to martyreo, that is, to bear witness to the nations, to open their eyes to this risen king who has conquered death and who offers freedom and rescue and the hope of a new creation. And it's this story about Jesus that's been spread all around the world by faithful witnesses. And to this day, when someone hears the story of Jesus and experiences the love of God for all humanity, the most natural thing to do is to simply bear witness. It seems like an easy thing to do. How many struggled with that? I have fear, anxiety. Anxiety never goes away. I always get nervous when we talk about that. So what's so important about telling the truth? I'll let um, Steve get the slides back up. Keep talking. That's okay. Can you think of somebody who has maybe gave a testimony? We don't do that much in churches anymore. We're going to do it the next couple of nights. Different ones, Lane and Peppy and Andrew and Leah, different ones are going to share their story of talking about what God has done in their lives. And um, why is it so important to get a witness about what God has done in your life? Um, I'm just going to go ahead and go without the slides, okay? There was a um, hillbilly who had two sons. And... um, He brings his two sons over, and he asks them, he says, I want you to tell the truth. Which one of you two threw the outhouse into the river? And he looked at both of them, and they're looking down at their feet, and neither one of them moves. And so as Paul says, I'll tell you a story. So he tells a story about George Washington cutting down the apple tree, and that his Paul told him, if you told the truth, I would not punish you. So Paul looks at his two boys and he says, again, I'm going to ask you one more time, who threw the outhouse into the river? Finally, the one brother raised his hand real slowly and Paul grabs him, takes him to the woodshed and whips him good. And the boy looks up at his Paul and says, hey, Paul, I thought you told the story about George Washington that since he told the truth, he wouldn't be punished. And he says, that's true. But George Washington's dad wasn't in the cherry tree when he cut it down. Why why is it so important to tell the truth? What I want to try to do these next several um, messages is to help you to tell the truth simply about what God has done in your life. That's being a witness. What does that actually mean? Can you switch the slide? Next slide. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. I believe this is the New King James translation. And being assembled together with them, Jesus, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which 
he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, every time you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. It's just a basic Bible principle when you're studying the Bible. Find out what it's there for. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That goes for us now. We spend all this time trying to figure out when Jesus is going to return and all these things. And we really just need to prepare to be ready. He says, you won't know the seasons and the time of which the Father has put in his own authority. But, now notice, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. I think some translation says you will be, but you shall be. It's not something that you have to, to guess about. When you became a Christian and the Holy Spirit came and lived in your life, he says you shall receive power. It's not an if. You get it. And he also says you will be witnesses. Now notice what he's not saying. He did not say you shall do witnessing. He said, you shall be witnesses. The question is, are you a witness that talks or not? And that's the big question that we're, we're looking at. I want to look at what does, a wit, what does a witness mean? What is a witness? Go to the next slide. A witness is someone who has seen or heard something and communicates their experience accurately. Now, you might be surprised about this, these next things we talk about, but there's some amazing people in Scripture that their whole purpose was to do one thing, be a witness, period. Here's the first one that will shock you. Jesus. Look at this verse, this next verse. He, Jesus, has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He, Jesus, testifies, witnesses about what he has seen and heard. But how we believe, but how few believe what he tells us. Here's Jesus is a witness. He comes from heaven and all he does is tell us. What he heard his father say and what he saw his father do. Heard and see. Let's go to the next verse. We talk about the shepherds. The shepherds went back to their flocks glorifying and praising God for all that had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told him. They are testifying about what they heard and they saw. Let's look at the disciples, the next passage. Here's John's disciples. John's in prison. He's questioning stuff. We want to make sure he got this right. So he sends his disciples to Jesus. And this is what Jesus tells him in, in 722. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised to life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. If we go to the next one, we're talking about Paul. God tells Paul this is his purpose before King Agrippa. In Acts 22:15, 15, he says, For you are to be his witness, 
telling everyone what you've seen and what you've heard. If we go to John, John and 1 John, he writes this passage because there's a bunch, a lot of weird stuff being taught that's kind of scouring around in churches and gatherings about Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. And this is how he encourages them. This one who his life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Part of the problem is we don't witness about what we've seen and heard. We witness about what other people have seen and heard. In a court of law, that's called hearsay. In a court of law, it's inadmissible in court. Your testimony isn't any good if you testify about anything that you haven't seen or heard. So I want you to see this. Because the church doesn't go around talking about what you have personally seen and heard, everybody questions your testimony and the validity of it. You see, your testimony, your witness about your life can be proved. If you want to know about Bruce Paulus, talk to my neighbor right there. Talk to the people who I went to school with, what I was like. It's verifiable. Some of you, it's verifiable. All you have to do is a background check. And they can verify what you've seen and heard. Because people can't argue with your testimony. They can argue with the word. They can argue with the Bible. I don't believe that's true. But they can't argue with somebody that's standing in front of them, flesh and blood, about what you have seen and heard and what God has done in your life. That's why it's powerful. You don't have to memorize a whole bunch of scriptures to quote. The first Christians didn't have a Bible for years and years and years and years and years and years. All they knew is what God had done in their heart. And they testified about that. That it was so powerful. Let me use an example. If I'm in the city, I'm in St. Joe, and I'm at a red light, and I see a car run through the red light, and they crash, because I saw it, I'm a witness. The officer will come over, check, make sure everyone's okay. They'll come over to me and say, did you see anything? And I'll say, yes. He says, because you saw something, I'll need you to testify. Now, before I testify, I don't have to get online and take a course on cars and brakes before I go testify. I don't even have to go to light school. All he wants me to do is tell what I've seen and heard. Now, don't take me wrong. We can learn how to share about our story better. And for the longest time, you know, I took courses like EE, Evangelism Explosion. I knew the five spiritual laws, all these different things. And it just really hacked people off when I shared. Nobody gets upset at me when I tell my story. Because it's my story. And it's powerful. Five minutes after you are saved, you have a story to tell. Five minutes. 
You're a witness. God expects something of you. He expects so much of us, he thought it was okay to go live with the Father again, and he would send his spirit to use us to tell the story about what he's done in the world and what he's done for us. Incarnational ministry. The reason the world around us, the United States, have never seen God, question whether he exists is because they've never met Jesus, because you aren't there. The Holy Spirit lives in and through you. It's incarnational ministry. If you aren't before them, they can't see Jesus. It's that simple. And it's that powerful. A lot of times, here's the second thing we don't want to do is, when we witness, we don't want to argue. We get hung up on people's actions and beliefs. And so we want to argue. And so we want to point out, why are you drinking Why are you living with such and such? We want to talk about politics. But here's some key things I want you to see. Jesus died for everybody's actions. You get that? Why are we worried about everyone's actions when Jesus died for them? It's like we want them to get cleaned up before they come to church. You know, you don't take a rag and go to the sink and wash all up before you get in the tub. That's stupid. You get in the tub. When I come to Christ and I decide to get baptized, I don't have to get cleaned all up, get my life all right, before it talks about washing away my sins. We just jump in, and we're a part of that. The most important thing to do is to tell people that Jesus loves them and he wants to change their lives. Now, I want to tell you a story. This is a little difficult. We don't talk about these things at church, so I'm going to talk about it. Anyway, R.J. Donovan Prison is a prison. I oversee 633 prisons that we have programming in, about 42,000 inmates. R.J. Donovan's is a prison in southern San Diego. It's 1.5 miles from the Mexican border, which causes some other problems. It's a real famous prison. There's a lot of famous people who are incarcerated there. Uh, Siron Siron, the guy who assassinated Kennedy, is there. Tex Watson, the guy's uh, a part of the um, the uh, excuse me the Manson family who murdered so many people is incarcerated there. The Menendez brothers who are there, remember them? The kids who went out and killed their folks out on the boat, and they're in our they're there. There's just a lot of people there. And when we were running our program there, we had about 250 guys in, in small groups and about anywhere from two to 300 people would come to church on a Thursday. And one day, it, there's about 5,000 inmates there. There's five yards, so there's five prisons basically, and they gave us Echo Yard, E unit, about 800 guys. Nendez brothers there, different ones. And so one day, when you're in a prison, you can tell if something's going to go down or not. I don't even know how to describe it, but you can walk in a prison after a while and tell if something's wrong or if there's going to be a fight or something's going to happen. You can feel it. I don't know how to describe it. If you ever talk to anyone that's been incarcerated, they tell you the same thing. I was walking across the yard, and I'm watching everybody in the yard, and I see everyone's kind of acting different. And I look, and there's some officers, and they're bringing this individual 
in, in, a, in an orange jumpsuit across the yard. So I go up to somebody and I said, who's that? They said, that's Lady J. I said, who's Lady J? She says, one of the most violent inmates in the California system got transferred here. Lady J is a transsexual individual. In the state of California, if you were transsexual, meaning you had a sex change, they, they used to keep you segregated and then they mainstreamed everybody. And so they're mainstreaming some people, bringing them to the echo unit. And, and so here's, here's the problem. Lady J comes to church. And people in the church freaked out, just like you would freak out if a transsexual individual walked in your congregation this morning. So after the service was over and I was kind of getting people settled down and everything, I walked up to Lady J and I said, can I meet with you tomorrow? He said, sure. So we meet out near the commissary area, Southern California, so the weather's nice. So they have these, you just meet outside. You don't have, you know, uh, classrooms. Everything's done outside. So we're sitting outside at the at this cement picnic table, we're having this conversation. And I said, um, I just wanted to meet you and introduce myself and tell you about the program that we have. And he says, oh, you're not going to throw me out of church? I said, no, why would I do that? He says, all you Christians hate me. I said, I don't hate you. He goes, so I can go to church? I said, yeah. I said, why do you want to go to church? And he says, well, I've just got lots of questions I need answered. I said, okay. I said, you're more than welcome to come to church. The next week, he brings 52 other dudes with him. They have breasts. They have eyeliner tattooed underneath their eyes. Their hair's all up and curly and everything else. And they come, and they're sitting there. And I have about 32 volunteers who come in. And a group of my volunteers get together, and they pull me to the side and said, we can't do this. I said, you can't do what? We, we just can't do this. They're, they're ruining worship. They're ruining this, all this stuff that's going on. I said, okay, Leave. I mean, I thought it was simple. If you can't be there, just leave. And they said, no, we can't leave. What are we supposed to do? I said, well, if their body offends you, look at them right in the eyes. Tell them that you love them and Jesus loves them and he wants to change your life. Look them in the eyes. I said, do you think you can do that? And this one lady says, It's going to be tough, but I'll try. Six weeks later, Lady J gives her life to Christ. Because I let them come to church. So they could hear the gospel. Faith cometh from hearing and hearing the word of God. Here's what I want you to understand. Because I deal with weird all the time. Mound City doesn't deal with weird. I deal with weird. I deal with rapists, pedophiles, murderers, 
uh, drug addicts, just on and on and on. So if there's weird, I deal with weird. And weird makes up the church. But weird was created in the image of God. It's just that some of these images that I see really make me feel uncomfortable. (laughs) Very uncomfortable. Especially when Lady J wanted to give me a hug after she was baptized. But I want you to see something. Just because you love somebody and show compassion to somebody doesn't mean you're approving of their lifestyle. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world, the word there is wicked dead. For God so loved the wicked dead that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't, God and Jesus didn't have a conversation and say, there's some people I'm going to love and some people I'm going to be compassionate about and some people I'm going to die for and some people I'm not. But just because Jesus came to the earth, it doesn't mean that he approved of all of our actions. Because he loved us. I'm here to tell you there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be hard to love. I remember years ago, it used to be divorced people. He didn't talk about divorced people. Divorced people never got to be Sunday school teachers. Divorced people never got to do anything. They were horrible divorced people. And then divorced people were kind of, you know, he kind of dealt with that. And then, then I was at a church nearby here over at Oak Christian Church, and there was a girl that came to church who was pregnant, and she was in high school. And oh, my goodness. And we had this meeting about throwing a shower for her and her baby. And the women's group says, we can't do that. She's living in sin. I said, fine. You know what Bruce Paulus did? I rented a church basement, spent my own 50 bucks, went in town. We had the biggest party you ever saw. And that girl ended up giving her life to Christ and marrying the dude she was living with. But all you have to do is tell your story. All I did with Lady J was the second time we met, we sat down there and I just told my story. I said, I was pretty miserable in high school. I was so miserable, I got tired of everybody. So I became a Christian when I was a junior in high school during the summertime. That's after we won a state championship. That's after I went to college to be a music major. That's after I went to state and got five ones and five different instruments that I played. And I'm miserable I hated life. We're living in the motel. I went in there. I knew where the safe was. I took all the money and I ran away. I took off. Until I ran out of money in Indiana, I was sleeping in my car at a Walmart parking lot for weeks. And I had my car packed with everything I thought I needed. You know, I brought my trophies. I brought my trombone. I should have brought food. (laughs) That's why I was running out of money. 
I did bring my Bible. And I was so miserable, I started reading it. And I read in Psalms 51 about how miserable David was. And David was so worried that God was going to take his spirit from him. You know, witnessing's hard. Some people just turn people off when they witness. You know, you never, a Mount City guy never hung out in Oregon. I'm sorry, Oregon and people, it just wasn't cool. I went to Oregon one time, and a girl named Lorna Officer came up to me and told me I was going to hell because of the way I was living my life. My response was, I can't say what I said, but I just drove home. But just in case she was right, I put my seatbelt on to make sure I was safe when I drove home. (laughs) All I did was share to Lady J about how miserable I was. I felt lonely. I felt miserable. I had all these things going right, but I still wasn't right in here. I was still struggling. Until I gave my life to Christ and there was such a peace and I, and, and I said to him, I said, I said, I don't know, but I'm guessing that there, there are times when you go in your cell and you close your eyes and you're alone with your thoughts and your thoughts consume you. You can't turn them off. And you say to yourself, man, I wish I could just have relief I wish I could just have calm. I wish I could just have peace and go. (sighs) And I said, do you want peace? He said, that'd be nice. I gave him a few scriptures. I said, just read on, read them and come back and tell me what you think. I didn't tell him what to think. I didn't tell him what the scriptures mean, meant. You see, a lot of times we try to take the Holy Spirit's place. (laughs) It's not your place to convict people of sin. Your place is to tell your story. Let the Holy Spirit convict people of sin. We want a decision. We look good then. We're always counting numbers. How many people come to church? How many people are baptized? You know, the most important thing you can count Every week, I wish we counted how many spiritual conversations we had that week with those that we interact with. That's what we should count. Because they're so important. There's, um, I don't get shocked anymore when people sin. I don't get shocked when I sin. Do you get shocked when you sin? No. So why would you get shocked when somebody else sins? I'll put it this way. A dog barks, a hunter hunts, a golfer golfs, and a cat meows. And sinners sin. That's what happens. Sinners sin. Don't don't get all worked up. I want you to see when we're telling our story, kind of an acronym of what to look at. If you go to the next slide.
I want you to write on your paper, get your pen out. I want you to write the acronym SALT. S-L-S-A, I can't even spell. That's why I flunked English. S-A-L-T, SALT. And that's what, this is what SALT stands for. The S stands for start a conversation. Just a simple conversation with somebody. Doesn't even have to be spiritual. Just start a conversation. The A stands for ask questions. I never have problem having a conversation with anybody, especially on the airplanes or no, no matter where I'm at. I can always have a conversation. You know why? Because people love to talk about themselves. Just start asking questions about themselves, what they do, what's going on in your life. Start a conversation, ask questions. The L stands for listen. Listen is important that Alan talked about. This is what I think. The greatest attribute that God has is he listens. Think how weird this is. Everybody in the world's praying to God, and he's listening, and he can differentiate between each of us and hear each of us individually, and he listens to us. I don't know how that happens, but that's pretty good. So here I want you to see, I am most like God when I listen. I am most like man when I run my mouth, when I'm talking. I am most like God when I listen. People want you to listen to him. And then finally, tell your story. If we go to the next slide, this is what we usually end up doing, which is horrific. We start talking, then we start arguing Something's going on we don't like, their actions, what they believe, and stuff like that. Then we start arguing, especially when we start losing the argument. We get louder, and then we kick them, and we do kick them. In that Barna research, when we were doing the study of those who do not attend church. Now, it's interesting that when we... When we did that study where we talked about those who identified as Christians were those who at least went to church once a month. That's how bad it's gotten. But when we talked to those who did not attend church or anything like that, and we asked them why, they say this. 99% say they've had a bad experience with church or with a Christian. You know, we don't like talking about sin, but we sure do not let loose of our judgment. And we judge people. And we judge people. And it hurts. We hurt people around us. We, we judge people so much. Christians judge Christians. Tammy and I have been judged. I got accused one time in a board meeting of stealing an extension cord out of the kitchen and the women couldn't plug in their crock pots. I thought, how stupid is that? I mean, it got heated. I got up and left. They said, where are you going? I said, there's nothing in my contract that says I have to go to a board meeting, so I'm leaving. Bye. We judge, and it hurts. 
We kick people when we judge. Now I want you to show you the next, can you go to the next slide? This is Kenya, over where our mission is. This is traffic. In 2008, Kenya decided that they were going to put in traffic lights and stop signs and paint lanes in the road. That is a four-lane highway. <laughs> and the first time you're over there, you're thinking, oh, my God, how are we going to get from here to there without hitting somebody? And you know, when you talk to the driver and you say, well, I bet you guys have lots of accidents. He says, no, we hardly have any accidents. I said, why is that? He goes, we don't expect people to obey the law. We don't expect people to stop at the light. We don't expect people to, you know, to stay in their lane. We don't expect it. And he says to me, he says, you know what the number one country that has the most accidents in? The United States. Because we assume if you're in that lane, you're going to stay there. You know what happens when somebody gets out of their lane and moves over? We're shocked. We're even offended. And people point you to Jesus and say hi and honk. We get offended. And here's the problem. Here's how I want to relate as being a Christian. Why in the world do we think that a non-Christian should know the rules. Why do we think that a non-Christian is going to stay in her lane? Why does it shock us? Why do we get offended? The most amazing thing about Jesus, everything he was accused of and everything that went on, there's not one time he was offended. It wasn't the time he was shocked. He wasn't shocked when the woman was caught in adultery and they drug her out in front of him. He wasn't shocked when he talked to the woman at the well and she'd been married five times. He wasn't shocked when when Judas betrayed him and left. Jesus isn't shocked when you sin. He's not shocked. But I want you to know that being a witness is just telling what you've seen and heard Jesus do in your life. Don't argue about it. But here I want you to see something. Witnessing is fun. Witnessing is fun. If you can go to the next slide. On the left is uh, Chloe and on the right is Angela. Several years ago, we had a, a national soccer tournament in Kenya. We were doing that as our outreach and um, we had uh, 18 teams from all over the nation showed up. It's easy to get them to show up because we were giving cash away. Um, and that was a big deal. 500 bucks is a big deal when the money exchange is 100 to 1 in Kenya. People show up from all over. We're at the last day of the tournament. Over 5,000 people there. In it's kind of strange because there's no bleachers. They just line where the out-of-bounds line is of the field. I mean, just 
line packed up. We got a lot going on and everything. And Chloe and Angela come up to me. And, and I'm busy, and I'm thinking about all this stuff going on. We took enough uh, individuals with us um, that we com- competed in a tournament, too. They were soccer players. Um, Angela played at uh, Colorado University, and Angela was still in high school. Um, they came up to me. They weren't playing. And they said, Bruce, um, we drove by a school on the way here. Do you care if we go over there, take them a soccer ball, and tell our story? And I said, I don't, I don't care. I was, I was busy. I didn't really think about it. I, I really didn't even remember where the school was we passed. But I told them to go for it. So they took off. I didn't pray about it. I didn't do anything. I just sent them on their way. The tournament is over. We're packing up everything. People are dismissed. People are going home. And we're, we've taken all of our pictures. The, the uh, um, Nairobi television crew was there. And we did our interviews and all this other stuff. Where everything is done. And all of a sudden, I realized that Angela and Chloe aren't here. I thought, oh, crud. I wonder where the school is. <laughs> We start driving down the road. They said they saw it on the way we came, so I thought, well, if we just drive back home the way we need to go, we'll run into the school. We've been gone about 30 minutes and finally come across the school, and there's all kinds of activity. All the kids are outside. It's a high school. And, and I see the white girls. I see the girls standing out there. Easy to pick them out. And I see five of our pastors. We have 25 pastors. We planted 25 churches and there's five pastors out there, and it's animated. You can tell they split up into different groups, and they're talking and stuff like that. And so I came up, and I said, Angela, are you ready to go? She goes, no. I said, did, did you share? She said, yes. She goes, we got work to do. And I said, well, what kind of work we got to do? She goes, well, I shared my story, and Chloe shared her story, and we thought, well, what the heck? Let's ask people if they want to follow Christ. And she goes, 230 kids are out here. They want to follow Jesus. Witnessing's fun. We spent the rest of that afternoon working with the, the, the school mom, if you will, principal and the teachers there, and set up so that our pastors could come back three times a week to disciple the kids that made a decision. Things are going to happen when you share your story. You know why? Because you're filled with power. I hear people all the time say, well, I don't feel my faith. I used to feel my faith. I don't feel my faith. That's because you're not telling your story. In that passage, look at that passage. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be, you shall be my witnesses. It didn't say you shall do miracles. It did not say you shall prophesy. It did not even say you shall speak in tongues. Though I still believe those gifts exist today in some form, and then we need those. He says you're going to be a witness. Those girls, we come back, 
They're giggling. They're excited. They're chatty. They're, you just can't shut them up. And I said, that feels good, don't it? I said, yeah. I said, you know what you're feeling? Excitement? I said, no. So they said, um, thankfulness? I said, no. So Chloe, she's pretty outspoken, the one on the left. She goes, okay, tell us what we're feeling. I said, you're feeling power. You felt that being full of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing like it, is there? There's nothing like it. I played in state championship games. Contributed, won, done a lot of things in life. There's nothing as great of an adrenaline rush as there is telling your story and somebody comes to Christ. There is nothing like it. And I tell you, I'm addicted to it. Some people jump out of planes. Some people drive cars fast or motorcycles or whatever. I like talking to people about Jesus. That's what we need to get addicted to. Most people, if I could have a couple boys come up here real quick, help me out. We're going to pass out something. Have two guys. Girl, guy, I don't care who they are. Just somebody can walk. There we go. So, I want to pass these out. This, as we pass them down, everybody take one. This is a lead fishing weight. Most people tell me that they don't feel, they don't witness because they don't feel lead. So what I want you to do is take this lead fishing weight and put it in your pocket. And when you think about witnessing again, I want you to put your hand in your pocket and feel lead. Okay? I want you to do that. I want you to feel lead. You'll never forget this sermon illustration. Pretty corny. But we need reminded sometimes. To feel led. God does speak to us. Tonight we're going to talk about nudges. What's a nudge from the Holy Spirit? We don't like using terms like God speaks to us or, or um, you know, we get all bent out of shape. We've seen too many TV preachers on TV and stuff like that. But I'm going to, I want to talk to you about what nudges are. When the Holy Spirit nudges us. When he lays something on our heart. When he calls us to do something, when we're led, that's what I want you to do. So as they're continuing to pass these out, uh, some of you might need to take two. I don't know. I'm just, maybe. One for each pocket. Before we leave this series... You're going to be able to tell your story. Powerful. It's powerful. And it can change a community. There's amazing things that changed on Echo Unit. 
all the transsexual people, the Menendez brothers, all this violence and everything out. Three months in, the warden calls, and we come in. And um, he says, our staff are starting to see some things. I said, what's that? He says, violence is down. We're not having any DNR, disciplinary write-ups. People aren't getting in trouble. Guys are getting up and going to class. You know, you can measure transformation. It's not something you have to guess about. Because real life change is real life change. You can see it. You can experience it. And people will finally start asking you why you're acting like you're acting. And you just tell your story. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for today, for your love and compassion. Father, I'm so thankful that you didn't give up on our story, that our story hasn't ended. But Father, help us align our story with your story. Father, I just pray that each one here will feel moved to to tell somebody about their story or at, at the end, Father, that once they've answered the questions, maybe they would email it to somebody. Father, give us power. Fill us with your spirit. And Father, help lives to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.